1: You're listening to KUCI in Irvine at 88.9 on your dial and also on the web at KUCI.org. This is Privacy Piracy with your host, Mari Frank. And uh, Mari's a local attorney and privacy expert. She's also the author of a few books, including her two new ones, From Victim to Victor, A Step-by-Step Guide for
2: Ending the Nightmare of Identity Theft, and Safeguard Your Identity, Protecting Yourself with a Personal Privacy Audit. To learn more, you can go to her website at
1: www.identitytheft.org, where she has about 70 pages of free info. Evening, Mari.
2: Good evening, Lloyd, and we're glad to have you back. Hope you're feeling lots better. That I am. Oh, that's good. And if anybody wants to see our former guests and hear their interviews and also see more about our guests tonight, you can go to KUCI.org forward slash privacy piracy. You can even write us an email there. Tell us... Uh, What you're interested in privacy and what concerns you have and even ask uh, questions and we can answer them for you. Let me tell you, we have a great guest tonight. We are so lucky. We have someone on the phone with us all the way from Washington, D.C. He's a law professor and he was the privacy czar for the Clinton administration. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Peter Swire is a professor of law and John Glenn Scholar of Public Policy Research at the Moritz College of Law in, at Ohio State University, and he is also Director of that school's Washington, D.C. Summer Program. From 1999 to early 2001, he served as the Clinton Administration's Chief Counselor for Privacy in the U.S. Office of Management and Budget. In that position, he coordinated administrative policy on the on the use of personal information in the public and private sectors, and he served as a point of contact with privacy and data protection officials in other countries because we have to worry about uh, the privacy issues that when we deal with other countries and transferring information. Uh, Peter Swired is also a consultant to the law firm of Morrison and Forrester, a very big law firm even out here in Orange County, California. And in 2005-2006 he is a visiting senior scholar at the Center for American Progress. He was White House coordinator for the proposed uh, and the final HIPAA rules. Remember, we, we interviewed people on HIPAA Great. and, and uh, learned a lot about that. We're going to ask him some questions about that. And that's a huge uh, medical, the medical privacy rules that came into being. And he also played a leading role on topics including pri- financial privacy, the internet privacy, encryption, public records and privacy, economic policy and computer policy, and uh, security and privacy and he's the editor of the Cyberspace Law Abstracts of the Social Science Research Network. You can find out a lot more about him also at his own website at www.petersweyer.net. So I'm really thrilled to have him on here. Peter, are you there?
0: I'm here, and I'm thrilled to be here too, Mari.
2: Oh, thank you so much for joining us late in the evening in Washington. We appreciate it. Okay. Okay, so tell us. We're, we're you're one of my heroes. Uh, you're, you're one of the only uh, privacy czars. that. I guess you're the only privacy uh, chief that ever existed in, in uh, any of the president's White right. House. I
0: was, when I came in in 1999, I was the first, and the Bush people have decided not to replace it. So, so far, I'm the only.
2: That's right. How did you get interested in privacy issues anyway?
0: Um, I, I think I, I was always interested in, in uh information technology. My undergraduate thesis back in 1980 was about IT and how it fit together with economic and legal thought. So that was sort of the way my head was shaped from way back to when I was a teenager. Um, During the 90s, I wrote my first article about the internet and law in 1992, before a lot of people really had focused on the internet. And when you're thinking about all the ways data can flow, all the good things that can happen with data... One of the bad things is people's privacy can get invaded, so you have to think about that, too.
2: Right, and not everybody thinks about it, so we're lucky that you did. So you're a real techie, right? I can fake it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't write code, but um, but I, I spend a lot of time talking to people who do, and I do a lot of computer security things these days where where we have to have protections against all the attacks that happen. So that puts me in touch with a lot of, of, of techies uh, that way, too.
2: Right. So how did you become the White House Privacy Counselor?
0: Um, I got asked. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of strange. I think uh, I was at a, a lunch in, uh, in 1998 with a woman named Esther Dyson, who's a well-known woman in the high-tech world. And um, uh, the next day at, at the same conference, she came up to me and said, you know, the White House is looking for somebody for this privacy position. Would you like to do it? Um, <laughs> how do you so-
2: say no, right?
0: Well, I, I think the reason they knew is, is that I had I'd written a book um, in, for the Brookings Institution in Washington, and the book was about how the U.S. and Europe were going to work out this problem, because the Europeans had strict rules that seemed to cut off a lot of normal business things with the U.S. And by writing that book and by interviewing sort of everybody out there, um, people sort of realized, I think, that I cared about business, but I also cared about privacy, and there weren't so many people who had sort of both those backgrounds.
2: Exactly. So, what was it like to have that job? I
0: um, I liked it. I felt it was a privilege to have time in the government and try to do my best to to help do these things. Um, I, th- I think that the medical privacy rule uh, where w- was very exciting. Uh, the proposed rule, we we did an announcement in the Oval Office, and uh, I got to participate in briefing President Clinton for that. Um, it was early in the morning. I think it was eight in the morning, and his eyes weren't quite wide open yet. I'm not sure those are his best hours of the day. Uh, but um, he had never done a medical privacy event. And uh, in the briefing, it lasted about three minutes. And he's like saying, check, Roger, got it. You know, we're just giving him the basic things. He went out and he handled questions. And you would have thought it was the reason he ran <laughs> for president. You know, he just, he got it. He, he understood how it connected to real people, how you had to feel confident when you went to your doctor that your, your information was going to be handled in a good way. And he was really able to, to say that and, and, and be a leader on that. And we got the rule out.
2: Right, so the 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 rule basically uh, the whole HIPAA was supposed to protect privacy, and mm-hmm. uh, so h- how is it working?
0: Well, there's there's a lot that's good. There's a really basic common sense to HIPAA, which was during the '90s, all the payments in the healthcare system went electronic, and Congress said if you're going to have all those records, you know that Mari went to such and such a doctor for such and such a thing. When, when those go electronic, you have to build in security and privacy at the same time. So Congress and the law said to HHS, said to the you know, federal government, you have to write these rules. And then we went and, and, and issued a proposed rule. We asked for public comment, and we got um, more than 53,000 public comments. A lot of people cared about it. Right. And, uh, and then we, we, we responded to that, and, and, and it's in place. Um, I'm pretty, I think that when I talk to a lot of, I I just go around, I talk to nurses and doctors and people, and a lot of them say if they're part of the healthcare system, you know, we always knew we should be doing some of these things, but we really hadn't gotten around to it. And if you hadn't pushed us to put the systems in place, the hospital administrators wouldn't have gotten around to it. Um, there's, There's some hassles that come with HIPAA for the doctors and the nurses and stuff. But when I talk to people, as I often do inside the system, Just about all of them agree we really needed to move in that direction.
2: You know, I had a question. I don't know. uh, Several weeks ago, we interviewed uh, two people on on HIPAA. One was Twyla Brays, who is um, very much involved with the health council in Minnesota. She's the president. And then also we interviewed James Piles. I don't know if you know who he is. Oh,
0: yes. I've encountered Jim in various settings.
2: Yeah, Yeah. so Jim was on. uh, Apparently, he has sued the government for uh, violations of HIPAA.
0: Well, he he brought a suit saying that HIPAA was unconstitutional, that it violated people's right to privacy. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a law professor. I've studied a lot of constitutional law. I was involved as we were doing HIPAA, and I was convinced we had complied with the statute and we had complied with people's constitutional rights. And now there's been three different federal courts that have looked at different claims about HIPAA. All of them have easily said it, it's okay. It matches the Constitution. He he doesn't agree. He has arguments uh, that are feel important to him. But the judges who've listened to him, Democratic, Republican appointees, have all rejected his arguments.
2: Right. The, the one thing that he said that I think maybe you can help clarify was he said that under the Clinton administration, certain rules were allowing that for ordinary information you had to have prior consent, but when the Bush administration came in, those rules were reversed. Do, do yeah, you know- well,
0: I, a couple things happened. When, when The first thing that happened was there was a huge lobbying campaign to try to get President Bush to cancel the whole thing. Oh. And, um, in, in fact, Tommy Thompson, who was then head of, of HHS, the Health and Human Services, was quoted in the New York Times basically saying he thought they were going to get canceled. And um, in this case, uh, there was a White House meeting, And in the meeting, and we know that Karl Rove and President Bush were in it, in the meeting, um, they overruled that recommendation, and the president made a basic decision that it was worth having uh, medical privacy rules in place. Um, But after that, after they made that basic decision, they did loosen, especially the marketing rules. They made it easier for people to use medical data inside an organization for marketing. And... um, and they don't uh, give you a choice as a consumer to say, I don't want to get these marketing things.
2: Right. I think that's what he was talking about, at least uh, on our show.
0: Yeah. That well, that and that, and that was I, not I the case those, when you were in. I think that was a change that was a bad idea.
2: Right. Right. That's what he was saying is that he thought it was better under the Clinton administration um, in terms <laughs> of just the rule. You know, maybe he fought you then, but at least... Um, I guess he didn't know what he was going to come up against later. So.
0: <laughs> well, that's, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of folks out there who cr- criticize President Clinton, and, and now they look back on him and it's the good old days. So, right,
1: right, right. <laughs> when it
0: comes to a lot of these policies, you know, environmentalists don't we weren't green enough and boy they really don't think the bush people are green enough
1: so you know right that's right what you
2: right, right no but i think that the, what you're bringing up now was a legitimate concern that he had about the difference between the marketing versus mm-hmm. not allowing the marketing under under the rules under the clinton administration right and then the thing that scared me and i i did not know this i know a lot more about financial privacy than i did about healthcare privacy is that twyla Brays was talking about the fact um, that every baby born since 2003 has uh, blood taken from them, four or five drops of blood, that go into a database, and the parents have no, don't know about it, and they have no right to consent or to object. Did you know about that?
0: I'm not sure exactly what she's referring to. I'm not aware of any nationwide program that does it. There, there have been discussions in some states and some cities. New York City is one place they've discussed it, where they would... They would DNA type everybody's blood, uh, everybody, every baby's, uh, right. you know DNA. Uh, I, I'm interested to hear it. I just I'm not aware of how that. Works.
2: Well, you might want to click on that interview mm-hmm. <laughs> on our right. website because it was it just amazed me mm-hmm. to, to even hear that. So anyway, um, so so HIPAA had some good ideas, and and you know we get a lot of those privacy notices, and and right. you're supposed to sign all these things. I think one of the concerns that that came up with HIPAA was if you, um. Are a family member, and you want to know something that's going on in somebody's life, and they didn't authorize you, and then they're in a coma. It can be a real challenge to be able to get that information for your yeah. family. If they're
0: in a coma, the rule is very clear. There's no excuse for anybody uh, when there's when there's a family representative uh, there. Uh, they use their judgment that this is a family member. I, I think you know there's some tricky things. So imagine you know all of us used to be teenagers. And there's girls who go down to Planned Parenthood or uh, uh, people who get prescriptions when they're teenagers that they really, their parents aren't necessarily going to approve of. And this can even be true when people are 21 or whatever, that they might not want their parents looking at their records, college students and the rest. Right. And, and so it's been a very tricky thing. How do you let people say, no, this is really me? And then how do you say, well, but I'm their parent or I'm their third cousin or whatever? And so you have to have some way to figure out those things. Um, you, you know, it may be over time we learn how to do those things better. Right. But there's a, there's a bunch of discretion in HIPAA for the medical providers, for the doctors, nurses, and stuff, to use their judgment. And um, I think if they're doing it in good faith because they believe that it's reasonably you know, appropriate or it's a good interpretation of what the patient wants, that, um, that's really okay under HIPAA. Um, some hospitals, out of an excess of caution, say you have to sign things in triplicate. Right. But that's the hospital saying it, not HIPAA.
2: Exactly. And I think that's a really good point that you're bringing up, Peter, is that sometimes the doctors or the nurses or the healthcare agency is interpreting in such a way that people feel very frustrated mm-hmm. be- because of the situation. Yeah. So let's talk now about something that, gosh, I was just hearing today, and I, I think I sent you an email of, that yeah. I had gotten. I think I know
0: where you're headed. Yeah.
2: <laughs> we're we're going to talk about the Patriot Act. Yep. Yeah. And um, I think it's really important for my audience. Now, here we are in the University of California, Irvine, but we're right in the middle of Orange County. I don't know if you know Orange County, California.
0: Oh, I've been, I've been to Irvine. I've been to uh, Orange County. Uh, okay. The law firm I do work with has an office there, as it was mentioned. Oh, but,
2: that's right. Right. Yeah. So we're right back next to Newport Beach, and people can listen to us in this whole surrounding area. And um, I, th- I don't think people even understand um, what the Patriot Act was about. I mean, they know that after nine eleven, there was a quick response to quickly get some uh, some ability for uh, law enforcement and the FBI and the Secret Service to have some access to information to find terrorists. Right. But it's gone really far. So, can you kind of explain to us yeah. the the history there? I'll
0: explain there? the history because I I had a I got to be involved in the lead-up to some of this.
1: Right. Um, when,
0: when I was in um, in the government, John Podesta, who was chief of staff for President Clinton, asked me to chair a White House working group in 2000, in the spring of 2000. And we had 14 agencies, including all the three-letter agencies. In Washington, if it has three letters, like the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, the National Security Agency, right. you know, those are like the intelligence agencies. So three right. letters, you, you just know what you're up against. and. So we chaired a process to figure out how should we update our laws, our surveillance laws for the internet. That was the job. And in the summer of 2000, we introduced a bill, that proposed a bill to Congress, um, an administration bill that said we should do some updating because there's some silly things in the law. And I'll give you one or two examples. Um, the previous law said that when there was going to be uh, government access, it had to be to de- devices. But if instead you were now doing a things in the world of software, there wasn't anything there. There was no device there. And so some judges were saying, maybe you can't do these court orders because it's software instead of hardware. Hmm. And, and that was just leftover language from the telephone era, from the earlier days. So it makes sense to update the laws if we have outdated words, outdated technology in the law. Right. Okay, that's fine, and we can get a lot of people to nod their heads on that. But the, the other part is, when we proposed law in two thousand, we said we should update the privacy protections too. Right. So we said there's rules about telephone wiretaps. We should have the same protections around emails. Basically, if they're going to intercept your emails and read them, because those are your communications that we have about phone calls, because those are your communications. Right. And we thought that we update the authorities and we update privacy and we put together a whole package. And you know, I, I think that was a good uh, approach. Um, Congress, in fact, actually thought they should. we should move farther towards privacy. The House worked in the direction of more privacy protective than we were, and uh, Republicans and Democrats. Okay, now then comes the attacks the next year. President Bush is in office, and then they passed the Patriot Act. Eight days after the attacks, the Bush administration had the whole bill written, and they wanted it passed immediately, basically with no hearings and no discussion.
1: Right
0: Now that what they did in the Patriot Act is imagine our updating proposals. They multiplied that stuff by a factor of two or three or four. They like way increased it. And they took out all the privacy protections we had proposed.
1: Hmm.
0: And that was the deal. And that was the Patriot Act. So, you know, um, now what happened is Congress passed it, but Congress said four years from now, it's going to sunset on December 31st, 2005, which probably felt like forever to them in those days. Right, But, you know, this December, at the end of the year, a bunch of the new powers disappear unless Congress comes back and passes a new law. And the whole idea, and this was something I pushed for and was a really good idea, um, the whole idea was we need to reexamine these things.
1: We'll, right. be in a,
0: we'll be calmed down a little bit, we hope, in four years, and we'll be able to see what's working and what's not and what we ought to do. So Congress had a ton of hearings this year. I testified a couple of times in, in front of the Judiciary Committee's and now, we're. Senate has passed a bill. The House has passed a bill. They're trying to work out a, a deal on what this whole thing's going to look like.
2: So let's talk about some of the things that really are not protective of our privacy and are kind of somewhat scary.
0: Well, I think one one news item uh, is something that came out in the Washington Post in a great big article on Sunday, and so listeners can go to the WashingtonPost dot com and find this on the net. It's about something that. Almost nobody knew about called national security letters or NSLs. Right. I mean, whoever heard of these? I mean, I'm I'm a law professor. I'd written about them, but most people haven't haven't heard about them. So, these are basically things that were designed if if you're hot on the track of a terrorist or a spy, an agent of a foreign power, then you can. Um, these are designed to let you uh, find out who they're talking to on the telephone. And who they are, where their bank accounts are, so you can sort of follow the money. It lets you get certain specific phone records and banking records, and that's it. Right. And the surprising thing is no judge is involved. Right. And so there's the other no warrant. the surprising thing is that they're secret. So, right. like, the bank isn't allowed to tell anybody it happened. And if the bank gets a million of these things, they're still not allowed to tell anybody that it's happened. So that's a surprise.
1: Right.
0: It turns out that the, in, as of 2000, this was, a, this was a, a narrower law, and they were used a couple hundred times a year total. Right. Our new news is they're up to 30,000 times a year that they're, they're using these things. And the other new news is they used to destroy the records when the investigation was done. So if, if they did an investigation of Peter or Mari,
1: right. and then
0: we, we, clear, we checked out clear, they'd destroy the records because the whole reason for it was gone. But Attorney General Ashcroft changed that two years ago, and they have created a database they've never been told to anyone about in public. And the database is all this stuff they suck up now gets put into the database, and this FBI shares it with other agencies, and the president has said they can share it with appropriate private parties in their discretion.
2: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the private party part is really scary.
0: Yeah, so like, we're, you know, where are the rules? So there's no judge on the front end. And there's a database we never knew about on the back end, and the database is being given to who knows who. Right. And that, and so that's that came out in this. The reporter's name Barton Gelman, and that's really lit a fire under people this week. It's new news, right? Because no one was looking at this thing, and uh, there's there's very trivial changes made to this rule in the in the Patriot Act reform. But now we've realized there's this problem that an unaccountable. Wildly growing, sort of metastasizing kind of surveillance is happening, and the data is being done in ways we never dreamed were being used that way.
2: Right, and and we're getting people up in arms from from both major parties, the Republicans as well as the Democrats, on this issue. I've, I've read several articles that um, that there is a big concern by by you know people in, in both parties.
0: Yeah, uh, for instance, Senator Coburn from Oklahoma, a conservative Republican, right. uh, loyalist to the party, uh, on the Sunday talk show uh, this Sunday said, we really need to look at this and, and, and especially try to stop this database thing that we hadn't known about.
2: Right. So I thought under the um, Privacy Act in 1974, there aren't supposed mm-hmm. to be any real secret files.
0: You know, you've done your history. <laughs> you know, they just forgot about that.
2: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Well, you're a law professor.
0: (laughs) Privacy Act was passed because in Watergate era, it turned out the FBI and the CIA had tons of secret databases and secret records about Americans. And the whole idea of the Privacy Act was we're supposed to know what those databases are like. You're supposed to be able to see the records they have on you. We've reintroduced secret databases and we've reintroduced secrecy as if that previous whole effort had been for naught.
2: Right. So is, is the Privacy Act in effect at all?
0: Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's in effect Where it's in effect.
2: Uh, only when they want it to be in effect, like, right? You know,
0: it's, it's shaped, you know, like, you know, it's just shaped a little Swiss cheesy. You know, yeah. it's, done, <laughs> it's a little complicated. And, and, and especially when there are these nat- you see, national security letters are supposed to be used to go after terrorists and spies. Right. Okay. But that's the other change in the Patriot Act. It used to be that the telephone records had to be the telephone records of the terrorist or spy or the person they were in contact with. The new change is the FBI can go to the phone company and say, you see that database with a million records? Well, somewhere in there, there's one record that's about a terrorist or spy. Give us the whole database.
2: And, And the telephone company has no right to say no.
0: And today, up until today, there's been no ability to go to court and say no, and there's no ability to say to the public or to Congress, hey, this is outrageous, look what the FBI is doing, because it was a crime to tell anybody about this thing. Right. So what are you going to do if you're the telephone company? Right. You've got the FBI, you know, threatening you, not only with being un-American because you're not helping the FBI find the terrorists, but you're going through the expense of, of going through all these records, and you have no ability to publicize the problems that you see.
2: So what do you think's going to happen here?
0: Well, um this week, right, just just uh, today actually. Yeah. There were a couple good things that happened. Okay. So, um, one of the you know what happens when the Senate passes one version of the bill and the House passes another version of the bill, they sit down in conference to try to work it out.
2: Reconcile. Kind of, mm-hmm.
0: Reconcile the two. Right. The conference today they announced who's going to be in the conference for the House. But more importantly, the House um has now gone over to the Senate side on one of the big issues. The Senate had said this sunset idea is a good idea for at least some of the provisions that are controversial. In four years, they should expire again because that's the best chance for Congress to see what's going on and see if there's problems that need to be fixed. Right. And the House had not had sunsets, and the Chairman Sensenbrenner, the Republican chair for the House Judiciary, was against him. But there was a debate as the House was getting its conference together and it turned out that there was a big majority that wanted the sunsets after all, even in the House side. So, as of today, as of this afternoon, the House has basically agreed with the Senate that we're going to have sunsets for some of the provisions.
2: So, those sunsets are going to be in how many years? I mean, four, four more years. Four more years. We have to put up with all these secret files and
0: yeah. No, well, you know that's true. <laughs> though it's also possible now that we've learned about these NSLs, these national security letters, and how they're being done in ways Congress had never known, it's possible that the, the issue will come up again. Right. And especially because we've had Republicans and Democrats saying in public, this doesn't seem like the American way. No judge, secret databases, kept secret under gag orders forever.
2: Right. And how does this deal, do, you know, how, how do you reconcile this really with the Fourth Amendment?
0: Um, there's, it's, there's a basic change from 1787. The Fourth Amendment you know, was written as part of the Bill of the Rights back right. after the Revolution. So think about the records you would have had if you lived in your farmhouse in those days. Uh-huh. Basically, the records about any records you cared about, your will or any papers, your letters, were kept in your house.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And the Fourth Amendment says you're secure in your house against searches. Right. So the cops can't come into your bedroom or your living room. But think about where your records are today. The phone company has them, you know, or your ISP has your emails, or the bank has the bank records. And in some controversial cases back in the 1970s, the Supreme Court said basically you gave up your Fourth Amendment rights when you let those phone records or those banking records leave your house because you have consented to let the bank decide what to do with the bank's records.
2: How about these unreasonable searches and seizures? What about that without a warrant? I mean.
0: The, the point is that it's not considered a search or a seizure because it's not in your house.
2: Okay. So you have no reasonable expectation of privacy there?
0: That's right. The, the, and the, and, I, and, and the, that term, reasonable expectation of privacy, when the court first talked about it in the 60s, seemed like it was going to be a nice privacy protection because you could say, that's unreasonable to look at all my, all my emails or whatever. But instead, the court has has basically found that we don't have those reasonable expectations of privacy when things are held by outside companies.
2: The scary part for me is that there's no uh, transparency in all this. I mean, how do I know that because I have this radio show, and I think it's the only one really focusing only on privacy in this country, that maybe now they're going to have a letter on me? How would I know? You wouldn't. Yeah, and and how do I know if what they put in that letter to say that they should be able to search all of my records of everything about me, how would I know if that's accurate what they've even put in there?
0: So one of the big fears is that people who disagree with the current administration, whatever it is, if you know, if you're a Republican during the Democratic years or Democrat in the Republican years, right. if you have these policies that let the government look around like this, the fear is that they will use them in political ways. You know, that leaks can be used in political ways, that, Records can be searched in political ways. And part of the reason is that we know that J. Edgar Hoover used to do that. There's a whole lot of documentation. And one of the things I say is I assume that human nature hasn't changed much.
1: Right. right. (laughs) You know,
0: maybe you think it has. Maybe we're really different from, like, the people who lived 40 years ago. But when it comes to um, the temptation, when you have secret information to use it for your advantage, that's a very big temptation People are playing hardball, and they they want to win, and they don't want. They think their side is the better side, and they think that they're doing the right thing, so they justify to themselves as powerful people that they're doing it for good.
2: Hmm. We're uh, speaking with Peter Swire, who is a professor, a law professor at Ohio State University College of Law, and he is also a consultant and uh, testifies in Congress. and He was the chief uh, counselor for privacy. In the uh, United States uh, White House, and we're really lucky to have him here. You're listening to 88.9 FM in Irvine, and uh, KUCI dot org. And Peter, so so, what can the ordinary person do about this? I mean. What do you suggest of of those of us who feel so kind of impotent sitting out here? I mean, you get to testify, and Mm -hmm. and occasionally I get to testify. Yeah, you do too, Maria. Yeah, I know, but (laughs) but you but you uh, have a lot more clout. And but but what can we do as ordinary people with regard to this? This is scary stuff. This is not very American like to know that there's one,
0: one thing to do is let your elected officials know you care about this. They will listen, right? When they hear that ordinary people don't trust what's going on, then when they, you know, so you go to the town hall meeting and talk to your member of Congress. You know, that would be one one sort of thing. Um, Another is, you know, uh, write to your members of Congress about the Patriot Act, saying that we want to have stronger protections. Right now they're trying to decide where to make the deal on the Patriot Act, and public pressure to say, you know, Democrats, Republicans, independents, Americans deserve to have better protection of their rights. So make sure you lean on the side of protecting people and not, uh, and not uh, having unaccountable power.
2: You know what I was thinking when you were talking about not just if, uh, if you're a political dissident, you know, but what about if, if some unscrupulous FBI agent or CIA agent or, or somebody or law enforcement uh, decides they want to stalk somebody, an ex-spouse? You know, it may not even be a political issue. It may be um, some other issue. They want to find out about what is their ex-spouse doing. I mean, you know, I've done family law for years, and people do stuff like that.
0: Sure, there've been cases in the in the in the IRS and the tax service, right? Uh, documenting cases of people looking up Dolly Parton's tax returns. I'm not sure they're <laughs> particularly interesting or not, but you know, people do that, and and there's definitely been. Uh, bank employees and and federal employees and state employees who've who've done this kind of browsing uh, in this way.
2: And and we know law enforcement, too. Sorry? And we also know of cases of law enforcement doing this. Yeah. And they have access to these files.
0: Right. So one of the things you can then do is say we need to have checks and balances. And one of the things that would would include audit mechanisms to see that these files are being used only in the appropriate ways right and and uh, there have been proposals to do that, and so far uh, in homeland security and elsewhere there's been very limited uh, implementation you know another kind of check and balance is, is to have um, people like who are called chief privacy officers or something like that, but people in the process who are watching the agencies as their job to help keep the agencies consistent with the law right and and uh, th- you know, unfortunately, the current administration has never proposed or supported any of those kinds of accountability mechanisms. Um, Congress has started to to, to call for them, and, and agencies are now supposed to have chief privacy officers right. for the first time.
2: Right. But it's
0: been a it's been a struggle to get people in place to sort of keep track on how this stuff is is being done.
2: Right. Now, does the GAO, the Government Accounting Office? I mean, do they ever like if there's been thirty thousand letters a year in the last four years? I mean, we're talking about a lot of letters.
0: Yep. Okay. And each letter might be give me a database for a million documents.
2: Oh my goodness! So, so Peter, I mean, does the does the Government Accounting Office have the right to to do anything? Aren't they kind of like auditors?
0: They're, yeah, they've changed the name to Government Accountability Office, and okay. and they do they do those. They tend to um, historically operate more in the non-classified area. So, for instance, on data mining, which is another privacy issue, how is the government using databases to sort of search for suspects? Right. They were able to do data mining in the non-classified part of government, but they didn't do any of the Department of Defense or CIA data mining projects. So when it comes to those secret projects, we have to look for, for something else. And there's some other, I think, decent news that happened this week on that front. Maybe I'll just pass on to you. Yes, do. Okay. So... Um, you remember last year the, uh, there was a the intelligence overhaul. Now that now Negroponte sort of runs the the intelligence uh, uh, co- new coordinator for all the uh, intelligence in the government. Right. That was a bill that, in a lot of ways, um, strengthened the intelligence side. But in it, and I worked on this, and a lot of other people worked on this, including Bob Barr, who's a former Republican congressman. Um, in it, they said let's create something that's called the Privacy and Civil Liberties Board in the White House to try to build privacy and civil liberties oversight into these new intelligence things. Hmm. And the whole thing had been stalled and stalled. It took a long time because that happened last November. But this week on Monday, they, uh, the Senate had the hearing finally to confirm that people are going to lead the board. So it looks like within the next few weeks, for the first time since President Bush came in, we'll have people in the White House who are responsible to work on privacy and civil liberties.
2: So, do you know who those people are? I mean, mm-hmm. so who are they?
0: Uh, the chair is a woman named Carol Dinkins, uh, who was in the Justice Department about 20 years ago in a senior position. The vice chair is a guy named Alan Rawl, who's a uh, lawyer in Washington who's worked on technology issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ted Olson, who was in the Solicitor General's office. Um, uh, and there's one Democrat named Lanny uh, Davis um, because they have four Republicans and one Democrat. Is how they set it up, but at least they're they're going to have some people working on so national security letters issues. You have somebody to talk to now on these things, and they're going to have a staff and they have to to hire them. But but you know, at least and this was this was. Senator Lieberman, Senator McCain, you know, uh, Senator Collins, different people work, Senator Feinstein, different people working on it, but pushing the Bush people to accept at least some accountability, somebody who's looking at these issues. And as of this week, it looks like now we're we're going to get that in place.
2: Well, that's good news. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about privacy as a political issue. Um, okay. Which party does the issue help?
0: <laughs> well, you know, I work for the Democrats, uh, Maurice. So.
2: I know, I know, I know, I know.
0: Um, you know, so so like, uh, but I, I think. Um,
2: but you know, I've I've seen a lot of these Republicans, like Ron Paul, who has sure. some very strong issues about privacy. McCain, you know, who's um, a moderate conservative. Yep. I mean, it really, from my perspective, privacy is 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 an issue that should be bipartisan.
0: Right. Yeah. I think there's a there's a big truth to that, right? When 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 you think of um, conservative Republicans. And you, you ask them, do they think there should be big government bureaucracy that's secretly spying on citizens? Um, that doesn't sound like their view of the perfect government. Right. <laughs> right. And so especially what's called the more libertarian side of the Republican Party that Bob Barr is part of and Ron Paul and, and other people who who sort of talk about individual liberty um, a lot, they tend to think that privacy from government surveillance is an important thing to try to do and then on the on the democratic side, um, uh, you know whether it's the ACLU or whether it's, it's other kinds of Democrats, the idea that that government sometimes gets out of control and we ought to have checks and balances in place that's something that, that the Democrats um, have strongly supported and And I think when you look at where the privacy um, progress has come in this country, uh, a, most of the initiatives that that have been significant have happened with democratic leadership and i think the president clinton backed a lot of things and we we did a lot of things in this area that's a very big contrast with president bush who really hasn't wanted to spend time on it because it's not his priority so i think these days there's congressional republicans on privacy but at the national level the democratic parties really valued privacy a lot more and supported you know putting these protections in place
2: right so let's talk a little bit about the Constitution and the right to privacy, because that's a huge issue with all these, <laughs> um, you know, Supreme Court hearings uh, for, sure. for new justices. Uh,
0: right. You know. And it's a little, it's really pretty confusing the same word gets used here. Because we've been talking mostly about people's information, and now suddenly we're talking about a woman's right to choose, you know, abortion, uh, your bedroom, and things you do there.
2: And your right to die.
0: The right to die is another thing. Absolutely. I, I, and I think one way you can imagine this, when is the government allowed to come into your most private spaces, intrude into there, like um, the, the first case that really used right to privacy in the Supreme Court, I, I, I'm sure you know this, maybe a lot of your listeners do, is this so-called Griswold case. Right. Because even in the 1950s and 60s, there was a law in Connecticut that made it illegal for married couple to use contraceptives. Right. That was the United States of America not that long ago, like our parents' generation or whatever. Right. And the Supreme Court said, you know what? What, what, the, what the man and the woman, married man and woman, do in their own bedroom, with or without you know, a condom or whatever, that's not the government's job to criminalize that, that there's some right to a private space about that bedroom. And that that was a precedent for the right to the private space for a woman about her body. Um, uh, and the choice about, you know, whether she's going to decide to to make an abortion or not. Right. Um, But there have been a lot of other cases, right to die, is this is my body, the government can't force me onto a respirator. There have been cases, another case that I think is interesting, there was a a, a Cleveland, an Ohio statute in a a town near Cleveland that made it illegal for people to live with unrelated people. You had to live with your parents or your siblings or something. And it was basically so there wouldn't be overcrowding from people they didn't want in the town. But the way it was written, it meant that grandparents and grandchildren couldn't live alone in a house. And grandparents and grandchildren challenged it and said, you know, you're telling us how we live inside our household, and you're making it illegal for grandparents to live with grandchildren. Supreme Court said that's not the liberty that we accept in the United States. There's going to be a right of privacy here for how you get to live inside your home.
2: Right. So, so what do you think is going to happen here <laughs> in terms of, you know, the Constitution? I mean, one of the things I've been reading about Eliotto is that he is saying he respects precedent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, our chief justice, our new chief justice, says he res- rep- you know, respects precedent sure. and um, whether there is or is not a right to privacy in the Constitution.
0: Right. Well, I think so. one question is, are they going to overturn Roe? And and I don't feel like I have some special wisdom there. Um, The way those things tend to happen in the law is they come up with a case that's, you know, third trimester, and maybe they say it's okay for the state to do that, and they have a parental consent, and they say maybe it's okay for the state to do that. And so you you, you tend to you may, what what you likely would see is that the borderline would move towards a narrower right, and the state legislature would have a broader ability to regulate with notices or whatever it is, uh-huh. so I think I think you'd expect a narrowing of the scope of constitutional protection. But the um, but going the other way is a lot of those cases can be thought of as liberty cases, as individual freedom, as due process before the government goes into your house and says the grandma and grandchild can't live together. And if you if you say it that way, if you say this is what. Due process requires, or or liberty requires, under the Fourteenth Amendment. There's, I think, a lot of room for people on the left and the right to be cautious about the government mucking about there.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And and so we might see cases where the lawyers don't use the right of constitutional privacy, but lawyers talk about due process and liberty, and you can you can call it those things, and it, and those words are clearly in the Constitution. And uh, that may be a language that allows people to discuss it a little more calmly and get to sensible conclusions.
2: Right. I think privacy is something that not everybody even understands what it means. You know, it's not like Justice Brandeis when it's, you know, the right to be left alone. That's one way of looking at privacy. And then the right to control your personal information for financial privacy, that's a a whole other type of privacy. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the right to die is... You know, another type of privacy. So, yeah, people say to me, "Okay, what's your show about privacy? Piracy? <laughs> what what right. the heck does that mean?" Yeah, so so let's talk a little bit less controversial and scary to talk about, and <laughs> okay. and and get into the issue of um, financial privacy. You know what's mm-hmm. going on. I'm since you're you're right there in the heart of D.C. and you know all the stuff that's going on now with these security breaches sure. and all this stuff. So. Uh, what is your take on on how the, um, the 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 financial data protection bills are going? Have you kept up with that at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah, there's homework for me to do, just like there is for you.
2: But, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: well, I think I think using the word security here helps people understand that your bank account should be safe. I mean, you work on identity theft and have been a leader. In fact, I met you, I think, at a White House event related to right. identity theft. Right, in
2: 1999, I got to meet uh, the, the president and speak. I don't know if you remember. I
0: Yeah, I think it was May of 1999.
2: It was May of 1999, right. and I got to introduce the president, and mm-hmm. I was so excited that he... I remember I have on that tape where he said, um, I only wish we could have invited somebody with a little more energy. Because <laughs> I was so crazy. You would have thought I was on drugs. I was just so excited to be there.
0: You looked a little excited.
2: I was. I was. <laughs> which <laughs> I is okay,
0: right? Which was we, we okay. All, we all would hope that a chance to, to, to participate in things we care so much about. Exactly. But what I, what So people know that the banking system is changing and should change to let us do electronic things and to, I mean, you know, we, we shouldn't have to carry an old-fashioned paper passbook into the bank every time we want to change our savings account. Right. So we need to change our technology, but we need ordinary people to be safe while it happens. And so the, the trick here is how to let the innovation happen so that the good new financial services happen, which will be more convenient for us. I can remember as a kid, if you didn't have cash by 5 o'clock on Friday, you were sunk. Exactly. Right? No money till Monday. You can't know? go to
2: the movies.
0: <laughs> right, you couldn't do anything, right? Right, so, right. Um, You're so showing your age. That, I mean, I, I, if I said that to my teenage kids, they wouldn't believe me. I mean, they wouldn't right. because they know I'm really old, but right. you know, they just, you know, what they're going to say. Okay. So we need that. So there's a million great things about these changes, but we have to let it be that ordinary people, and people who are not A students can, like, do their banking and feel like they're safe and be safe in how they do it. So one of the things is where California took the big lead, as as, as you know, right? which is when the breach happens, when Choice Point or, or Bank of America lose records and they're your records that, that are put at risk, they have to notify you about it. Right. And, and that's the California law. And, um, we built in problem- we built
2: in one safe one one loophole for well, not necessarily a loophole but one encouragement was that if the uh, electronic records were encrypted mm-hmm. then you don't have to notify
0: right which is I think a great idea because we want to encourage people just like you want the bank to have good locks on the doors they should have good locks on their data and the, and if it's being shipped from point A to point B it should be encrypted so if it falls off the back of a truck you're not leaving people's passwords and bank account numbers sort of lying out there in the open
2: and and that's what we thought of when we when we really worked on that bill is good. that we wanted to give um we wanted them to be careful and we thought that would encourage them because then they don't have to disclose
0: right and and that and I think that is, uh, if and when there's a federal bill, that part will now be national. I think the big question is whether the California protections will get watered down at the federal level.
2: It looks like it, doesn't it?
0: Well, you everything know, and, I'm reading. <laughs> right. So right now, the draft bills water down the California law. They preempt because California has been copied. California, there's 18 states at least that have bills like this, right. all modeled on California, but right. all a little bit different. Right. So, it's spreading because states realized this was a good idea, and now that Congress wants to get in on it what i what I hear is that it's unlikely we'll have a bill this year. They'll probably come back after January one and start work on it again, and there'll be chances to you know fuss about it. Um, but I think that when the privacy groups that I talk to, the simple point is have the California standard of protection
2: right, it's working. I mean that's the whole point is like if it's working, why break it? You know, I mean, we've had over 50 million people who've who've gotten security breach letters, but the fact is, is that you know, it is encouraging companies to do other things to protect the data. You know That's what I mean?
0: True. I see that with the clients that I work with.
2: Exactly. And some people say, you know, you know, David Madine, he was on last week. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so David and I went at it a little bit, not not in an argument, but he he has the the same perspective that I've heard many times from industry and he represents industry and, and you know and I understand that but theirs is well we don't want to have people get so many notices that they'll just not think about it anymore but when they're, um Larry Poneman from the Poneman Institute yeah. he does surveys and and I uh, do a lot of things with Larry's he's great he's been on the show twice and his most recent survey is that people do want to know and that if you are a company and you disclose that but you do it in the proper way they actually trust you more, that you were open and honest with them and that you're going to do everything you can to protect them. So I, I think if you ask an ordinary person and say, look, if your sensitive information was acquired by a criminal or an unauthorized person, would you want to know about it? And and I everyone I think who hears that would say, yeah, I want to know about it. Now, yeah, there's been 50 million notices out there, but but the reality is is, I don't know very many people who've received more than one. When I was on CNN, everybody, you know, from Time Warner, there were 600,000 notices that went out. And uh, unfortunately, those notices went out and said, we don't think anything happened, so you don't really need to do anything about it. If you want three months of credit monitoring, we'll give you that. Then after that, you have to pay for it. So, I mean, the the, the notices have not um, necessarily done anything to uh, frighten people most of the time. <laughs> uh,
0: well,
2: some of I them have been better. Somebody
0: with energy again.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Hearing you talk about it, I mean, you have a lot of passion for this, and, and you're able to communicate, you know, why it's important. And and we know that companies are paying more attention to data security because they don't want to have to um, uh, tell the whole world that they screwed up.
2: Yeah, and I think that's basically it, that if they if they have to disclose, um, I guess the question is this, if if they don't have to disclose, if it's up to the company itself to say whether is it, there's a reasonable risk of harm or reasonable risk of identity theft or whatever you want to call it, Right. Um. And then they're going to say, okay, let's ask our outside counsel, Peter Swire, if there's a reasonable risk of harm, and then they're going to blame you. Well, Peter said there wasn't a reasonable risk of harm.
0: Yeah, I, so the lawyers sometimes are cautious the other way. Right, right. So, it's. I mean, I think that's... Um, <laughs> There's another piece that that I don't know if, if if it's something you'd support or not, but it's something that I've, I've uh, suggested in, in an article, which is um, sometimes um, you have the, the important breaches and clearly should send out the notice, and it's absolutely clear. Sometimes um, you, you did something like you lost a laptop. One employee lost a laptop. You have no reason to think that it was stolen by people who wanted to use the data. It's a lost laptop, but it contains data on it. One in between, maybe, to consider for these smaller incidents would be to have reporting to, like, the Federal Trade Commission or something, basically an incident report, and that way we can learn over time what's going on, what the kinds of problems are, do we need to have more individual notice. In other words, it it gives us some feedback so we can learn how to do this better over time, and unless we get information about the incidents, then we're not going to learn how to do the security better, and... Um, so in addition to whatever notices go out to the individuals, there might be a second tier where you put it in your annual statement or you tell it to the FTC. And that way the watchdog groups and the experts on security can learn how to do it better. Because I, really, I do think that we're, we're on a learning curve for doing computer security and network security. And um, whatever it looks like today it might be, look different in a few years. So having some way to learn about these security problems um, is going to help us have better laws and, and figure out better responses over time.
2: Well, you know, under the California law, if that laptop was encrypted, if it had, you know, let's say it's from your bank and there it's the escrow sure. or, or escrow company, let's say, because mm-hmm. I actually um, had a, an an incident where my information was my my credit report was sitting on a uh, on a laptop by when I was refinancing, right. <laughs> and I and I found out it was just sitting in the back seat of somebody's car. Right. And you can imagine what I said about that, but uh, other than that if 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 it was encrypted, mm-hmm. that would have let them off the hook in california
0: but if you like so on my computer, i don't encrypt every file every day,
2: no, no no, but, but we're not if, saying what I every do file is I
0: have a password protection before you can get into my computer. Is that good enough under the california law
2: well, what I meant was only those files. Which have the sensitive information, and when we talk about sensitive information, it has to have like the social security number and other information with it. It's not just a name and address. Right, right. Not just a name and address. Okay, Mm -hmm. that that wouldn't that would not even click in with our law. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying, you know, uh, that if if that laptop, if people saw that the laptop, they had to disclose it. You can be sure that they would tell everybody, look at you. Don't take a laptop out unless it's encrypted unless the sensitive information of the loan applications or the credit reports are encrypted so i would i would just say encrypted but but i do want to come back to your other idea about having maybe the federal trade commission involved in helping perhaps the federal trade commission could uh, decide whether or not there should be a disclosure or a, a notice um, unfortunately some way,
0: to, some way to spread knowledge over time about what counts and what doesn't
2: Right, or, or law enforcement, you know, because I know law enforcement really wanted Choice Point to disclose and, and pretty much made them disclose mm-hmm. before they did because they knew about the, you know, it was a Los Angeles uh, Sheriff's right. Department. So, you know, I really don't like to leave it in the hands of the, it's like, you know, the wolf minding the hen house. I really, if if, if companies were willing to disclose if there was something really that was going to expose people to harm, then Choice Point, Axiom, and LexisNexis would have disclosed or given notice in 2002 when they had huge breaches and they didn't until our law came into effect in July of uh, 2003 so but I like your idea of having like the Federal Trade Commission if they had enough money and enough resources you know Mm -hmm. to maybe be involved in that Mm -hmm. but we don't have a lot of time let me just ask you as kind of a final question because you know I wish I could take you as a law professor (laughs) you would have been my law professor when I was in law school so so what's what, what do you think is the future of privacy?
0: I think the future is we're going to have a lot more happen on the privacy front. We have so many new ways of using data, and a lot of them are great. They get, let people Google and they let people do all the other things that people want to do. But if there's ten good things, there might be one or two bad things, and we have to make sure that we have the protections built in and basically we have to make it so that regular people can live their lives not being scared that somebody's going to steal from them and not being scared that somebody's sort of looking at them in their private life and if we do that then it'll be a society we want to live in if we don't do that then we'll have that sort of loss of control the sense that they're watching us they're out to get us and all this kind of stuff so we have to keep doing privacy and security as we do the good new systems and that's just a natural there should be a natural part Of progress is having really great uses of data and having the protections built in at the same time.
2: Well, I I would love to see us have a a privacy commission like all of the other, like the European Union countries do. And then I'd like to see you as our commissioner. (laughs) (laughs) Well... We'll you see, know, huh? Whatever.
0: You give me a nice <laughs> travel budget. I'll I'll go to. I'll visit all the other countries. Uh-huh.
2: They, right, know? right. Well, this we our time is up, and we really enjoyed having you. Thank you so much for great, taking for the, the time late with. at night and sharing all your great expertise. And I hope that you'll come back on again. And hey, fight for some privacy for us while you're over there in Washington. All right?
0: That's fine. I'll do it again tomorrow.
2: Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank and you, you, Mari. Bye bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Privacy Piracy. I'm Mari Frank and my co-host and engineer, Lloyd Beauchamp, is back helping me. So glad he's healthy. If you want to learn more about our shows, please go to www.kuci.org forward slash privacy You can see our previous guests. You can see their bios, their pictures, and even listen to our previous interviews. And you can also see who's coming up. Uh, every Wednesday at from 5 to 6 p.m. here at KUCI.org. And we thank you so much for joining us. See you next week.
0: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.